from the studios of Farm Journal Broadcast. This is U.S. Farm Report. Welcome to U.S. Farm Report this weekend. I'm Tyne Morgan, and here's what's in store over the next 60 minutes. A fact-finding mission. We go into it uh, with no preconceived notions in terms of uh, what we will expect uh, to find. A preview of the 2023 crop tour as the Midwest turns up the heat. Export demand still in troubled waters, but as a shift set to set sail. She didn't grow up on a farm, but now there's nowhere she'd rather be. So I say cultivate courage all the time, but really for me that is learning to do all these hard things. How this Kansas farm wife is helping cultivate courage with other women of act. And in John's world. What's going on down south? U.S. Farm Report, presented by Pioneer. What's next happens when the name on a cap matches the power of one's purpose. Pioneer, what's next happens here. Now for the news, China's leader is calling for patience as his country tries to reverse a deepening economic slump. Xi Jinping giving a speech this week saying the West's pursuit of material wealth led to, quote, spiritual poverty, end quote. It comes after recent data showed consumer and factory activity further weakened last month, despite promises from the ruling Communist Party to support struggling entrepreneurs. Xi calling for China to, quote, build a socialist ideology with a strong cohesion, end quote, and to focus on long-term goals of improving education, health care, and food supplies. Their currency has now uh, declined again, uh, so I believe it's now to 16-year lows against the U.S. dollar. Uh, so it's all an attempt to try to spark better demand to come over and buy Chinese goods. And of course, if China can then sell more of their goods, they would have cash and then they'd probably start looking to buy more product. Also on the Chinese front, an important ruling from the World Trade Organization this week about China. It says Beijing's decision regarding certain retaliatory tariffs against the U.S. were inconsistent with the organization's rules. A panel with the WTO recognizing the U.S. tariffs on steel and aluminum put in place during the Trump administration as security measures while rejecting China's decision to impose tariffs on $2.4 billion worth of U.S. products in retaliation. The U.S. Trade Representative's office announcing it was pleased with the report, calling China's retaliation sham safeguard tariffs. In response to the decision, Beijing called on the U.S. to remove its tariffs on metal immediately. Also on the trade front, the battle over GMO corn with Mexico is now escalating. The U.S. Trade Representative's Office announcing the U.S. is officially establishing a dispute settlement panel under the U.S.-Mexico-Canada agreement regarding Mexico's stance on biotech corn. Catherine Tai saying in a statement, it's critical that Mexico eliminate its inconsistent biotechnology measures so that American farmers can continue to access the Mexican market. While Mexico bans GMO corn for humane consumption, it does allow it for animals. And the U.S. continues to argue Mexico's policy lacks scientific basis. Well, for the first time since Russia ended the Black Sea grain deal, a ship has departed the Ukrainian port of Odessa. Ukrainian officials say the Hong Kong-flagged ship had been stuck in port since February of last year. They say it's traveling through a temporary corridor. It's reported to be carrying more than 30,000 tons of cargo 
including food products. But Russia appears to have renewed attacks on Ukrainian ports along the Danube River. Ukrainian officials say Russia is using drones to strike grain storage facilities in the country's southern Odessa region. Ukraine's Operational Command South said Russia hit the territory of one of the ports, destroying hangars with grain and ag machinery. Ukraine's Air Force reports it destroyed 13 drones in the area. Happening right now, operations along the Panama Canal are being impacted by drought. The organization responsible for managing the canal has decided to restrict both the number of ships passing through each day and the amount of cargo that they can carry. Officials say they're taking this action due to a decrease in the water supply caused by ongoing drought due to the El Nino conditions. The issues at one of the world's busiest trade passages have forced some companies to find alternative routes. The restrictions will be in place through Monday and limits new reservations passing through the canal's old locks, which are commonly used by smaller vessels. Reuters says that about 70 percent of traffic through the canal originates from or is inbound for the U.S. And here at home, the clock's ticking on getting a new farm bill done before the current program expires. Leadership of the House and Senate Ag Committee are saying the more realistic goal is completion by the end of the year. Our Michelle Rook had boots on the ground at Dakota Fest in Mitchell, South Dakota this week, and Congressman Dusty Johnson telling her he agrees with that timeline. We should get a farm bill done sooner rather than later. I know people like to wait uh, until your, your back's up against a deadline. I, I like to get our, my work done ahead of time. But that being said, it's going to take us another month or two to get a good house version probably take the Senate that long or a little longer. Then it's going to take us a month or two to try to navigate the differences. That's going to put us up against the end of the year. The debate continues to be about the final cost of the bill. As House Ag Chair G.T. Thompson has said they want more money for the program, while Senate Ag Chair Debbie Stabenow says there aren't any additional dollars. Plus, the nutrition title and possible work requirements means testing are also a point of contention. Well, we're just a couple days away from the annual Pro Farmer Crop Tour, and the latest check of crop conditions from USDA is showing some improvement. But you can join us each night to see the results live. 49. 49. It's happening all next week, and you can join us live each night. You can watch the day's results by viewing Crop Tour Live online. That's at 8 p.m. Central on all of Farm Journal's social media channels, including agweb.com. Agweb.com also has the link on the homepage. All right, that's it for the news. It's going to be a hot one for Crop Tour next week, so just how historic could the heat be? We'll have a check of your weather next. Meteorologist Matt Engelbrecht joining us now with weather. Matt will be hitting the field for the Midwest Crop Tour next week, and it's typically hot along with some showers sometimes. But next week's forecast looks to be shaping up to be one to remember. Now let's go ahead and get, get a little bit more specific. The locations that you mentioned, we'll go over and show you whether or not it's going to be above average or below average for the tour. Doesn't matter where you go. It's looking like you're going to be above average, and that's going to be a good 5 to 10 degrees above average for those locations. The one pocket that we're seeing the possibility for some below normal temperatures, that all has to do with that tropical system. Yeah, Hillary moving up towards the north and riding the ridge of this temperature outlook. Now the drought monitor, there is a bit of a drought in SoCal, Southern California, uh, so that should help, but they are looking at a good amount of rainfall if the track holds with that tropical system. Still need some rain, but we are not going to get it. Uh, coming up not only this weekend, but next week, you basically have to go to the fringe 
of this high pressure back up here towards the north and up and across where we may see some showers. Also monitoring something else in the Gulf of Mexico that could provide some relief down here in Louisiana and Texas. We'll of course keep a very close eye on it. Still an extreme if not exceptional drought has shown up through portions of the United States. So we've been looking at this last couple of days. Uh, last week we were talking about this ridge of high pressure developing across the United States. And as we've talked about before, uh, all the energy, including that tropical system, it can't go through the ridge. So it's actually steering, this ridge is steering this tropical system back up here to the north. Any energy that uh, flares up up here towards Montana, North Dakota, that is going to ride the ridge up and around. But if you're underneath or within this circle, and that's Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, in fact, this ridge gets even stronger, uh, you're looking at clear skies, and hot temperatures, of course, dry conditions as well. Again, this is Jetstream coming up on Monday. Uh, I wanted to get you into when this pattern finally starts to break down, but we're all already through the middle part of the week, your Wednesday and Thursday, and that ridge is still holding with any kind of energy or that trough uh, digging, but staying very shallow back up here uh, to the north. Uh, so uh, that's one way of saying that this is going to be a long-term trend. We're looking out ahead to our Monday, well, Monday through Friday. They expect above average temperatures starting to cool down uh, from the northeast down here to the southwest by Friday and Saturday. Even then, uh, we're still expecting temperatures to be rather warm. Here's the precipitation outlook. It follows exactly what we were just talking about, where underneath that heat dome, in between August 22nd and August 26th, we're going to be below normal with the rain chances. And then back over here onto the West Coast with that tropical system combined with some other elements and looking at possibility of wetter than normal conditions. Thanks, Matt. Well, that hot and dry forecast for next week, it fueled soybeans this week. But what's pressuring corn? Peter Meyer and Jared Creed join us next. Welcome back to U.S. Farm Report this weekend. Peter Meyer and Jared Creed joining us. We're fresh off of USDA's August report. A lot of debate about yield. And is that already old news considering some of the weather that happened after? But when you look at the market action this week, Pete, is the market trading yield? No, I don't think it is trading yields. I mean, it might be trading yields a little bit in soybeans, given the fact that uh, we have hot and dry conditions coming for the last two weeks of August. Our meteorological group says that uh, there will maybe some moisture in September, but it's going to be hot and it's going to be dry and it's going to be really hot next week during crop tour. Uh, what we see the market reacting to is the FSA data. So the FSA data is your certified acres. Uh, that was released about an hour after the crop production and WASI reports last Friday. And there's a, uh, you know, as is typical in August, there's a thousand different interpretations of the FSA data and what that means to corn and soybean acres. Yeah, so Jared, when you look at the, this FSA data, why are there so many interpretations today and what is it that's causing such market chatter? In regards to the FSA data specifically, you know, you have the chatter annually, uh, but it's a process to work through. Right now, it's a bunch of estimations of what that FSA data suggests uh, closer to the completion of all that data collected out in October and November. But at this point in time, I think there's a uh, a fairly reasonable expectation that you'll see corn acres expand to possibly a half a million acres higher and soybeans maybe flat to just a very small modest increase. But as in regards to chatter, you know, our corn market is not really needing additional corn acres at this moment. Uh, and perhaps that's just one more negative connotation that the corn market has to put up with at this point. 
Yeah, so Jared, as you're part of Pro Farmer Crop Tour next week, and you go out considering, you know, we could have expanded corn acres, considering we just have this latest look at yield. What, what do you want to see on Crop Tour next week, and what do you think could traders be watching? Uh, I do believe that the trade will be watching for any type of uh, significant or expanded area of crop damage that possibly has taken place back in July that has been missed from just driving down the road looking what fields uh, appear to be from the road. Um, you know, like Pete said, on the soybean side, so much of the verdict is out on yield yet over the next coming weeks. But on the corn side, I think there is risk that certain areas have already had irreversible damage take place. So maybe what you're looking for in general is how widespread is that damage or how minimal is that damage. Pete, I know something you've been watching is these counter-seasonal moves when it comes to crop condition ratings. We have crop conditions improving. So next week, as we measure some of this yield potential on crop tour, you know, what, which state do you think is going to be the most closely watched? Well, I mean, I think that Ohio and Indiana, kind of the, the verdict is supposed to be in. I don't think the verdict's in for central Illinois, uh, as far south as Decatur and maybe even as far north as DeKalb. I mean, you maybe just take the whole spine of the state and you have to wonder. What we've seen is these spotty showers um, throughout the year, and there's been a lot of hit and miss. Regarding crop conditions time, you know what? I mean, if you want to trade crop conditions after July 30th for corn, good luck. Because, you know, even NAS just uses the crop conditions for corn into their calculations at the end of week 30, which would have been July 30th. Now, as Jared has suggested, the book on soybeans has not been written yet. And uh, NAS will not look at crop conditions until week 34, which is actually the week uh, next week at the end of at the end of crop tour. So what I want to see is how the soybeans are putting up with the heat from next week, um, how they how they developed. We've heard a lot of different stories about the fact that the uh, plant structure was not great in soybeans. And then again, you know, we hear stuff from some of the other areas, not necessarily in the Midwest and not where we go on crop tour in the Southeast, where the bean crop is enormous. And the corn crop is going to be very good as well. But as far as crop tour itself, I'm going to be looking at plant structure and then, uh, and, and of course, obviously the amount of pods. Pete, real quick, less than 30 seconds, but based on USDA's yield estimates last week, based on your current yield estimates, I know that can change next week, but do you think USDA is too high or too low? I think they're, I think they're a little bit too low in both. Uh, I'm around, uh, or I shouldn't say I, we were around 176. We had an internal discussion yesterday. There were some people that wanted to push the number up to 177. Uh, USDA was at 175.1. We did a producer survey and it came back at like 175.6 and they were pretty close to where the USDA were. We went in at 176 just to round it up. And soybeans, I think, you know, there's some potential there. We went into the report last week at 51. They came out at 50.9 and we're kind of edging that number up a little bit. I think this week we're probably around 51 and a half. Uh, crop tour data probably won't influence our, our yield estimates. All right, Peter, Jared, thank you so much. Trouble in the Panama Canal, is it impacting ag exports? We'll look at that coming up later on U.S. Farm Report. Registration is open for the 2023 Pro Farmer Crop Tour, August 21st through the 24th. Attend one of our nightly meetings or join online as we gain insight on the 2023 growing season. Visit profarmercroptour.com forward slash register to select the stop nearest you. Well, the El Nino effect meteorologists say we haven't really seen the impacts here in North America just yet. But what about a little farther south? That's John's world this week. Every now and then, farmers glance down to see what's happening 
below the equator. And by below the equator, I mean Brazil. We have gradually resigned ourselves to Brazil being the top uh, soy exporter, but last year they also took the top spot for corn exports, a tougher fact to swallow. But there's more going on down there. For example, while we have been coping with the effects of the new El Nino, it's going to mess with the 23-24 growing season downstairs as well. The economists provided this helpful chart to predict weather patterns that climate models are currently offering for this area. This map notes wetter, drier, and warmer regions of South America. Maybe there weren't any cooler than average areas, or with the continent straddling the equator, cooler is a relative term with less meaning to us. Anyway, if we've learned anything this year, warmer than average can mean way harder, hotter for way longer. I noticed a couple of curious things. Bolivia is predicted to enjoy both drier and wetter than average conditions during the growing season. Overall, it could be a tough growing season for Brazil, with heat in the south and most of the country possibly drier much of the time. The strength, current strength of the El Nino, coupled with the already record warm ocean temperatures, suggests the headlines will just keep coming from the south. Meanwhile, something weird's going on in the Antarctic. Basically, it's losing ice, whole countries of it, as ice loss divergence from average is compared to Argentina or Texas. I find those analogies unhelpful, merely planting an image of Argentina floating around in the ocean in my head. This year, the sea ice uh, minimum broke the record that had stood since, well, last year. Some of us have been zeroed in on the North Pole since it's all ocean, and Antarctica has been relatively stable as far as ice was concerned, until recently anyway. I have no dramatic conclusions to draw from these maps, but just like the record low temperatures in Australia during their winter, they suggest to me the U.S. Corn Belt was part of the fortunate few places to avoid the most intense weather this growing season. What well, so far? Thanks, John. Well, a tractor collection that's so good, it's the centerpiece of one museum. That's in Tractor Tales, next. Hey folks, welcome back to Tractor Tales. This week, we're Lubbock, Texas bound to check out the FiberMax Center of Discovery to check out an interesting collection. Well, Mr. Alan Brazel, which was the one that really had the vision for this museum starting back in the late uh, 69, 70. He was also a county commissioner of Lubbock County, 36 years, a former National FFA officer in 1947-48. But he, in his time as county commissioner and his interest in agriculture, spent enormous lot of his free time scouting out tractors and old equipment that was being taken out of service on the plains. And he came across this tractor and got it donated to the museum. And one of our members, current members of the museum, restored this tractor in his farm shop. We sort of situated it here when they're entering the glass doors. It's one of the first they see. It's sort of a wow effect. Yes, these most of these in this building were refurbished for one person in a shop here in Lubbock. There's some that weren't. These three here you're looking at, these older ones weren't refurbished by others, but most of these others were 
in the museum was refurbished by one individual that Mr. Brazel oversaw. And this was restored by two of our volunteers, Red Rivers and Doyle McFerrin, and they were restored in our facilities and did a great job. And they were up way up in their years, in their 70s, when they did this for the museum. And you'll see many items in here that was done by our volunteers. And this was restored by two of our faithful volunteers, which are deceased now. They had a lot to do with helping volunteer here and helping advancement of the museum. I'd never seen one of these in my life until I got involved with the museum. Right up next, USDA's latest look at yield may already be old news, but in Northeast Iowa, drought is draining farmers' hopes for record yields. Just how bad is it? Well, that's our Farm Journal Report next. U.S. Farm Report is produced and distributed by Farm Journal Broadcast. Welcome back to U.S. Farm Report. Trusted, timely, tradition. Each year, the Pro Farmer Crop Tour happens the third full week of August. It started in 1993, and still today, it is one of the largest, longest-running crop tours in the U.S. Scouts will gather thousands of samples with the goal to provide results for crop districts, states, and the entire Midwest, not an individual field or county. And this year, it's a crop tour that's being highly watched. As drought has disappeared in some areas, it's still plaguing producers in other parts of the Midwest. There's no doubt about it, Northeast Iowa is dry. Right now to try to pinpoint a yield is nearly impossible. And part of that reason is we haven't seen a drought of this intensity in so long. Troy Deitmeyer is a pioneer agronomist covering the northeast corner of Iowa. He says this year the main theme is just how variable this crop could be. We're going to have some guys with the best crop maybe they've ever raised and eight miles down the road it might be the worst one since 1988 or 2012. The latest U.S. drought monitor paints the picture showing nearly 99% of Iowa is faced with dry and drought conditions with 3% of the state still in extreme drought. Probably some of the driest areas is probably around that Cedar Rapids, Iowa City area and working your way down towards southeast Iowa. He says some of that area did catch rains in early August, but it's still dry. Those are some of the areas that are really hurting, you know, one to two inches of rain since planting. Yet even in those drought-stricken fields, he says plants are still fairly green. The good part was with the super dry air and low humidity, we were allowed to really cool off at night. So it wasn't uncommon for us here to get down into the upper 50s sometimes in a lot of low 60s. So that gave those plants, you know, a breather overnight, just like we want to when we go into the air conditioning. While Iowa farmers face dry conditions, the garden spot in the state this year may be along I-35. So they started catching rains in June and they've kind of had them throughout. So, you know, Des Moines toward that Mason City area, I think is probably uh, sitting in overall a good, sh good shape, but even within that area, there's, there's pockets that are extremely dry. Iowa will be closely watched as scouts set out on the 2023 Pro Farmer Crop Tour this upcoming week. Because the Eastern Tour uh, covers Illinois and the Eastern half of Iowa, uh, the two biggest corn and, and soybean producing states. I think that the, the eastern leg probably has the, the question marks, more question marks this year. Brian Grady is editor of Pro Farmer and leads the eastern leg of the tour. He says the ultimate goal of crop tour is to span across seven states and measure yield potential for both corn and soybeans. You know, it's a fact-finding mission, and, and uh, at the end of the week, 
uh, we'll have a really good representative sample across the seven uh, Corn Belt states that, that we cover, uh, roughly 1,700 corn and 1,700 soybean samples. This map shows the seven states and areas the scouts will cover on their routes next week. We don't cover all those areas. Iowa is the only state that uh, we cover entirely. So we're in all 99 counties there, but the other six states uh, in Crop Tour, uh, there are areas. Uh, so we talk to producers that we know around those uh, areas. We reach out to other sources uh, within the industry and, and uh, um, to get a good representative sample of those areas outside of where we uh, sample from. With next week's forecast, Grady says the scouts will be measuring a mature crop. And the forecast is really hot next week, so we are going to push this crop uh, to maturity. And, and we will be measuring uh, more yield, um, actual yield than yield potential in a lot of these areas. And uh, our, our corn formula works better in years when it's a more mature crop than a less mature crop. There's no question variability will be the headline with Crop Tour next week. But between advancements in genetics and producers propelling their production practices today, it's a question of how well this crop stood up to this year's weather extremes. And with producers upping their game with management and the improvements in genetics, it's really hard to, to put a number on and, and uh, we're probably just gonna have to wait till October to see how it turns out. We'll be on the road from Pro Farmer Crop Tour next week, but you can actually join the conversation virtually every night as Clint Griffiths will host Chip Flory and Brian Grady for Crop Tour Live. They'll release the nightly results and explain what scouts saw each day. Just go to the Pro Farmer Crop Tour website for that link. Well, renewable diesel, is it all hype or is it producing real demand? Peter Meyer and Jared Creed rejoin me next. Welcome back to U.S. Farm Report this weekend. Jared Creed as well as uh, Peter Meyer joining us. All right, Jared, we talked a lot about production, yield, FSA data. We talked all about that in, in the first roundtable. But now let's hit on demand. Demand has been a sore spot for the U.S., for quite some time. That story has not changed. Are we seeing any silver lining here? I don't know if you want to say that we have a silver lining to look forward to, but I, I do think the worst is maybe behind us or getting closer. It's an uphill battle to work through worldwide supplies, specifically out of Brazil, and the expectation of another large crop production coming out of both Brazil and Argentina this next spring and winter. And, and on top of that, you know, the U.S. is going to be swimming in plentiful corn supply that we have to sit and wait our turn, in essence, to be competitive in the world market. Our domestic usage, it's okay. It could be better. But in all reality, between corn and soybeans, we're probably running the risk of exporting close to a billion to billion and a half even at the most uh, or, or more of le less amount of corn and soybeans than a few years ago. And it's just going to take time. We have to sit and wait our turn. Pete, is it pretty much a given that Brazil is going to overtake the U.S. as the top corn exporter They're, in the world? They already have. They did last year, right? It's a scary, it's a scary scenario when you look at U.S. export demand because when Brazil overtook the U.S., uh, I don't know when that was, 10 or 12 years ago in soybeans, it never looked back. And now last year in the 22-23 marking year, given the huge crop in Brazil last year, um, you know, they overtook, they overtook the U.S. And I think the USDA has us kind of getting closer to each other in the next year. We don't see that. We see Brazil just continuing to dominate the export market. They're still sitting out an awful lot of corn that was produced uh, in their last season. We don't think acres expand in corn next season. We think they're kind of flat. 
And the reason for that is because a lot of the interior prices are just absolutely awful. Interior Mato Grosso prices are $1.95 a few days ago. It's just nobody's going to sell it. So what the Brazilian farmer is doing is rather than convert it to currency, which, which seems to be devalued all the time, they're holding on to, to a hard commodity. And that hard commodity is corn. But October is coming and the rainy season is coming and we don't see any we haven't seen a lot of business out of Brazil or out of the U.S. for that matter. Jared touched on that. Uh, but the fact of the matter is that this corn has to move here within the next six to eight weeks, in our in our opinion. So where else could the U.S. find new demand? It's probably wishful thinking that we have to have a crop situation unfold in Brazil and other parts of the world in order for our product to be competitive. As Pete mentioned, we are just flat out too expensive to the rest of the world. Domestic demand is going to take time to rebuild the cattle herd. That's certainly not going to happen overnight. Maybe we can see small upticks over time in the ethanol market, but we need that market to be very profitable in order for that to happen and also plentiful supplies. The struggle with both corn and beans is flat out that we probably just need to get cheaper first before we experience any type of significant demand increase. And that's kind of, you know, the economics 101. We've been through a couple of years of high prices. Our demand has suffered. We reduced our supply domestically over a course of a couple of years of lower production. And now we're facing the repercussions of the high price environment that we're slowly coming out of. Pete, I'll never forget it. Two years ago on Crop Tour, you started this conversation about sustainable aviation fuel, renewable diesel, looking at as a possible new avenue for demand. Have we seen that come to fruition like you expected? On uh, sustainable aviation fuel, not yet, but we just saw another notification that ADM has signed a deal to provide ethanol to turn alcohol into jet. We think that alcohol to jet is probably going to be the future, so that that implies more more ethanol required. Uh, on the biodiesel or the renewable diesel side, I should say, look, last month and the last few months, we've seen increased capacity in the U.S., and they're still using roughly 40% of their feedstock comes from soybean oil. So we have seen it. Now, have all the plants that, uh, that were proposed two years ago, the new crush plants, come online? Not yet, but that's coming. That's going to come in 24 and 25. And we think that that's, it's, it, it might be moving a little bit slower than we thought. Uh, certainly on the sustainable aviation fuel, it has. But uh, it's still it's still coming and a lot. But a lot really depends on what the price of diesel is and what the price of uh, crude oil is. Pete, Jared, thank you so much. We'll see you next week on Pro Farmer Crop Tour. We'll catch up with both of you. All right. Stay with us. We have much more on U.S. Farm Report this weekend when we come back. Times Women of Ag is brought to you by John Deere, who celebrates the strength and resilience of the women who make farms run. Well, sometimes you grow up on a farm and sometimes you marry into it. Whitney Larson had no idea where her food even came from before she met her husband, but today she's embraced the farm life, now cultivating courage and inspiring other women of ag. You almost have to be insane. A from unforgiving drought to finally seeing rain, Whitney Larson has learned to cope with extremes. We have been in a catastrophic drought for five years, and so seeing rain has been very, like, like our faith finally paid off. Drinks of water that quenched the soils, but also brought another brutal blow. We did have some very bad hail the last last night and then maybe three weeks ago. And so that's kind of been disheartening. Neighboring fields look like this, while others were barely touched. Yet another reminder, farming in far western Kansas is one planted in seeds of hope and faith. When we first started farming, I found that your faith really has to grow. 
Larson and her husband Bart are used to dealing with challenges. After all, this is a first generation farm. We call ourselves first generation, so I'm actually third generation removed. Larson has some memories of being in tractors and combines when she was little, but her childhood was filled with sports. I grew up doing all things sports, and so basketball was my life. Her parents, her siblings, they all played college sports, but her husband, on the other hand, his childhood was full of nothing but farming and ranching. It's been in Bart's blood his whole life. It was his dream and it quickly became mine after I saw how passionate he was about it. Farming is all Bart ever wanted to do, and a farmer is all he ever wanted to be. But the youngest of four boys returning to the family farm wasn't an option. We decided to try the realm of custom ground rig spraying, and that's how it kind of was born, was he started a business that led to us meeting new people and building relationships, and then we were able to eventually, we started custom farming, and then we were able to rent some ground of our own. Starting with custom spraying in 2012, the Larsons purchased their first piece of ground last year, a growing farm with a growing family. Our oldest is just turned 10, and then eight, four, and I'm 28 weeks pregnant, so. Everything's growing. But as the operation and family were both growing, Larson says she resented the farm at first. So coming into this where I wasn't in agriculture, I felt very distant or disconnected from this lifestyle. Finally, he, he started pushing me to try more things. But she says that's when it all changed. And once I finally got over my fear of that I couldn't learn this or that I didn't belong here, I really started to flourish in the fact that I can do all these hard things just like he can. From first learning to drive a truck, Larson admits she's come a long way. I do find pride in the fact that if we have something go down or a guy can't come for the day that it's like, hey, Whitney, go hop in the combine and have you run it. So I learned that when Rowdy was a baby. So he was six months and he and I learned how to run the combine together. And it's all thanks to her husband for believing she could. I really thank him for the fact that he pushed me and made me learn things because it has been something that I rely on every day. I say cultivate courage all the time, but really for me that is learning to do all these hard things. It's that courage she wants to help instill in others. She started sharing on social media in 2017 with the goal to be real and authentic about what goes on on the farm. So I really just started sharing to help others know where their food came from. But that blossomed into much more. It started out as an event for women in ag, but it's really flourished into an event that basically all women feel called to come to. It's called Cultivating Courage. The event this year drew more than 300 women. And from there, Larson's dreams grew even more. So after Cultivating Courage this year, I actually started a women's retreat that I'm gonna try to do twice a year. It's called Cultivate. So it's basically a spinoff of Cultivating Courage. And I just hope that more women can hear that word cultivate courage and just do do the things they know they can do but are a little bit scared to try. From a podcast with her now best friend Kylie to even starting an Ag Women Connect chapter in Kansas, Larson is on a mission to inspire others. 12 years ago when there was social media, that wasn't there for me and I just want to be that light for others and let them know that, hey, just because you didn't grow up in this or just because you've never tried it doesn't mean you can't do it. What an inspiration. And if you're interested in attending Whitney's 2024 Cultivating Courage event, details are on her website. That's farmwifeguru.com. All right, when we come back, customer support this weekend. Is there an upside to Prop 12? 
The Supreme Court's May 11th decision to uphold California's Proposition 12 ballot initiative is one hanging over the pork industry. But is there a positive side to Prop 12? That's what one viewer thinks as John Phipps discusses in customer support this weekend. A comment on California Proposition 12. We may not want to completely knock California's Prop 12 space requirements for swine. Here in southwest Missouri, a lot of cage-free egg houses have been built to meet the needs of California egg consumers. It has been a boon for barn builders, feed mills, and producers alike. Like most contract farming, the margins are tight but seem to be doable. Prop 12 might bring swine back to regions where it is left. It might not. I don't like California dictating rules to me as much as the next guy, but it might make an opportunity for producers to stay on the farm. And that's from Brian and Karen Gordon in Conway, Missouri. There is always a risk when you go to war with your customers, especially your biggest. To frame this, though, as California forcing Iowa producers to change is perhaps not the best way to understand the situation. The big problem for outside pork producers was exactly when to act. What if the law did not endure? By holding off until after the Supreme Court ruled in favor of California, significant competitive advantage accrued to producers who tactically decided to pay attention to their customers. As Brian points out, early adopters will have a minimum of three to five years before the holdouts can make that transition. Early adapters uh, will rightfully earn substantial premiums during that time to help recover their rebuilding costs. Perhaps the swine industry considered the problem political and a conservative Supreme Court would automatically favor red state producers. But predicting this Supreme Court has been more difficult than many thought. Curiously, neither animal welfare advocates nor the pork industry highlighted the fact that 42% of pork sold in California is not subject to the welfare standard, just whole, uncooked products. The scope of the ban is then much less than the headlines. Meanwhile, every swine and egg producer who rebuilds to meet California standards adds to a growing advocacy group to maintain those new standards. Moreover, other states will likely add this market rule with similar legislation. Prop 12 will add significant costs to outside producers, but as the Gordons point out, this regulation can also be a legitimate business opportunity. Well, Barry Goodwin of North Carolina State University thinks Prop 12 could be catastrophic for the pork industry, saying compliance costs will force pork producers out of business. And Iowa State's Lee Scholes tells us when you look at this chart, current economic conditions don't support investing in new pork production facilities. And pork producers could be in for their worst financial year on record, even worse than 1998, which could spur even more consolidation. All right, when we come back, harvest is already happening in parts of the country. An early look at what farmers in Louisiana are seeing. That's next. Registration is open for the 2023 Pro Farmer Crop Tour, August 21st through the 24th. Attend one of our nightly meetings or join online as we gain insight on the 2023 growing season. Visit profarmercroptour.com forward slash register to select the stop nearest you. 
Well, one state not covered on crop tour every year, Louisiana, and it has been hot, it has been dry, but our crew hit the fields this week to see how crop conditions are holding up despite the heat. Overall, the crop's looking okay. Um, despite this, this heat wave that we're in, we are able to keep water on, on about 90% of our acreage. So it, it's been looking okay with the pesticide control. We was able to spray in time, so everything's everything looking all right. USDA NAS shows 51% of Louisiana's corn crop was harvested as of Monday. That's 22 points ahead of the five-year average. And over in Alabama, harvest is barely getting started. Just 9% of the corn crop is harvested across the state, but that's still slightly ahead of average. In 2022, we picked the worst corn crop we'd had since 2012. But this year, it was hot and dry in June, but not extremely hot. The corn wasn't as stressed when it started raining in July. We're expecting to pick a fairly decent crop. Well, Louisiana and some of those states that we don't cover on crop tour, they are talked about each night in the nightly meetings that are in person. You can join us in person or you can join us live. The link for that is on agweb.com. Well, that does it for this weekend's U.S. Farm Report. Thank you so much for watching. Be sure to tune in next weekend as we hit the road for crop tour and we work to build on our tradition. Have a great weekend, everyone. U.S. Farm Report is produced and distributed by Farm Journal Broadcast.